Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of Central Florida podcast. This is the podcast where we explore Central Florida's history through the artifacts found in local area museums and historical societies. This series is brought to you by Riches, the regional initiative to collect the histories, experiences, and stories of Central Florida and the Orange County Regional History Center. I am Daniel Velasquez, and I'll be your host for today's episode, titled Citrus Industry. The Orange State. This is one of Florida's many nicknames. Long before Florida became a tourist destination, and decades before Henry Plant and Henry Flagler brought their railways into the state, Florida was already known for its oranges. Citrus production is so synonymous with Florida's history and culture that the orange has become one of Florida's most popular symbols. In this episode, we will explore the long and rich history of Florida's citrus industry through the objects found at the Winter Garden Heritage Museum and at the Indian River Citrus Museum in Vero Beach. Orange trees have grown in Florida for hundreds of years. They were first planted by the Spanish around St. Augustine in the 16th century. However, oranges remained a local commodity in Florida until the post-Civil War period when citrus production rose to more profitable levels. We spoke with Dr. Mark Long from the University of Central Florida about the beginnings of Florida's citrus market. Well, two things developed. One is that the, the market for fresh citrus developed up north, right? That market really didn't exist. It had to be invented for the most part because access to citrus in the northeast uh, had come previously from Spain and it was a very long way away in terms of shipping time and so it was a very minimal market. So as the market develops for fresh fruit, uh, what becomes imperative is the way the fruit looks more than anything else. Right? It, it has to be something that someone would pick up in the same way we walk into a grocery store now and, and choose our fruit and our vegetables. Right? So the distance between Florida's orange groves and the northern markets meant that fruit preservation became a big issue. Several packing methods developed, as Dr. Long explains. When it became a crop destined for northern markets, which it did beginning in the 1870s, uh, packing became central, right? Because the, the the time between picking, packing, and getting it on the on the wharves in New York or Philadelphia or Boston, wherever it was going, was pretty significant. I mean, this is uh, it was all done through uh, through the maritime, you know, sort of connections between Florida and the Northeast Coast, and there could be a lot of spoilage. So once profits obviously diminished, packing became central to preserving profits. So early on, they're packed in barrels with sawdust. Uh, it was a horrible way to ship oranges. Um, the spoilage rate was incredibly high. and so they, they come up with a better packing system for that, and that is they, they instead of barrels with sawdust, they move eventually to boxes uh, and boxes with paper. And so they would line or they would wrap each individual orange in a piece of uh, a fine piece of paper to try and preserve the skin of the orange and then pack them into crates. So it becomes uh, a significant bottleneck in terms of both time and cost, right? It's labor intensive uh, and it's time intensive. Uh, but what it does do is preserve the orange in root, which is really um, most important. Given the effort that was necessary to effectively pack oranges and other citrus fruit for the trip north, a packing and shipping industry developed to meet these labor-intensive needs. Dr. Long tells us more. What develops, of course, is a sort of nexus of these packers who are not rowers themselves. They become the sort of middlemen. And the buyers would come typically from up north down uh, representing the, the sort of the, the moneyed interests that own the, the packing um, industry and the shipping industries. They would come down and buy 
crops from farmers on the tree before they're even picked uh, and give a, a, a set price for the, for the crop. And then the, the citrus grower himself would step back, right? So then the, the, the seller of the fruit uh, would then pick the fruit and take it to the, the packing house and then ship it north. That was a typical arrangement. The other arrangement is that the, the farmer himself would pick the fruit and then take it to the packing house and sell it there again, but as an entire crop rather than, you know, sort of obviously individually. Though there existed many large grove owners, the production of citrus fruit in Florida continued primarily in the hands of small-scale, often family-run farms into the 20th century. We spoke with George Speedy Harrell about his experience working on his family's orange grove. They sprayed the fruit and then they tried to have it as blemish-free and no rust on it and all, and they sprayed it with a thing called lime sulfur, some kind of concoction that they sprayed with, but it would burn your eyes. So he had a, a spray machine and they walked around the trees with a hose and they sprayed them all over good. He put me to drive in the truck and two of my older brothers were spraying the trees with this thing. And if I didn't drive the truck right, they'd spray me. <laughs> the World War II era brought many extraordinary changes to Florida's citrus industry. As citrus expanded after the war, the industry became like a factory system. The demand for unskilled low-wage workers continued, and productivity and efficiency became a science to the citrus industry. Dr. Gary Mormino from the University of South Florida describes these changes. Well, prior to World War II, you had huge numbers of family-owned citrus groves. World War II changed everything in Florida, not just demographics and, and the, the military-industrial complex, but also agriculture. Prior to World War II, the, the dominant <clears throat> source of labor, agricultural labor in Florida, was African-American. It had always been that way. And, but during the war, African-Americans flee Florida in, in large numbers for better jobs in the north, in, in industrial jobs, or they join the military. To fill that vacuum, the citrus owners, the grove owners, and the, uh, the fruit and vegetable owners went to the government and the uh, the Food and Drug Administration uh, helped implement a, a, a new policy where they would bring Caribbean laborers over. The government paid their passage, uh, and, and they were eager, Jamaicans and Barbadoans were eager to find work here. But um, this pattern continued uh, for decades and decades. As noted earlier, one of the most prevalent issues traditionally faced by citrus farmers was spoilage. Citrus owners introduced field test kits like the one on display at the Indian River Citrus Museum. These testing kits told the growers how healthy their fruit was and if there was an early incident of disease or parasites infesting the crops. Disease and spoilage would have a greater impact during the World War II era, as Dr. Mormino explains. The problem with the citrus industry had always been spoilage or imperfect fruit. In a, in a market where people bought whole fruit, canned fruit juice had never proved very popular. It always tasted tinny or metallic. Uh, dehydrated juice tasted like uh, aspirin and water, the British said. And now the solution is found uh, in World War II, frozen concentrate. 
perfected in uh, laboratories uh, on uh, Paramore Road in, in Orlando and in little facilities such as Dunedin, Florida. It coincides, that techno technology coincided with some economic trends that, that had begun even before the war that big grove owners gobbled up the little grove owners. Homeowners, American consumers now had freezers or freezer compartments. Prior to the World War II, frozen juice wouldn't have made any sense. Many grocers didn't have freezers and certainly homeowners didn't have this. It also coincides with the baby boom after World War II. Mothers didn't have time to squeeze the juice. So Florida orange juice is the rage. And you have this tremendous investment. And by the 50s, for the most part, you know, the majority of the groves are dominated by about a half a dozen firms. Furthermore, the concurrent developments of frozen concentrate and the rise of large grove owners had certain consequences for the diversity of Florida's citrus industry. Uh, there's another consequence of this. Prior to World War II, grove owners tended to plant a, a wonderful variety of oranges. So they would all come to uh, harvest at a different time. So they could sell to tourists and, and to consumers in November through March or April. When's the last time you saw a Parson Brown or a these obscure oranges? Well, with frozen concentrate, they they tend to 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 use only two types of oranges, uh, Valencias and pineapple oranges, and consequently, the the groves that are largely now selling to the big uh, frozen concentrate plants transform their groves into pineapple orange groves and Valencia orange groves. As the citrus industry grew throughout World War II, the production of citrus became a factory system, from the grove to packing or processing the concentrate and onto its distribution. Laborers worked side by side as thousands of fruits passed them by. As the industry grew after the war, so did the need for more advertising and marketing. Jim Crescicelli from the Winter Garden Heritage Foundation tells us more about citrus industry advertisements. Over the decades, the advertisements became more colorful and relied mostly on graphics, and they used different angles to push the juices. And some of them feature large, actual life-size glasses of the juice to show you how much you would drink to get that day's vitamin C. They convinced everybody that you needed this much vitamin C. And through the 50s and 60s, they get bigger and brighter you know, picture full-page advertisements in Life magazine and such. But they were always thinking of a new way to sell orange juice and grapefruit juice and all kinds of mixed juices, hybrid juices, because that was the local industry. The main area of citrus production in Florida, or the Citrus Belt, had been moving southward for the last century. The heart of the Citrus Belt had been Orlando because of its proximity to the groves throughout the central part of the state as well as it being a nexus to railroads and highways that feed the rest of the state and the entire country. But Central Florida, as the heart of citrus, did not last long, as Dr. Mormino tells us. The beginning in the 1960s through the 1980s, you had some dramatic freezes. The freeze of 62. 1980s witnessed three killer freezes in Florida. And the consequence of this is, the, the center of the Orange Belt now is 
south, considerably south of Orlando. In 1940, Orlando was kind of the heart of the of the Citrus Belt, and then it shifted to uh, to Lakeland. And now it's probably, I mean, if you, if you drive through Arcadia now, you'll find groves in Arcadia and south of Arcadia. You you simply didn't see those in the 1940s. Having been the heart of the Citrus Belt for many decades. The history of the citrus industry is particularly significant for the Central Florida area. From the Citrus Tower in Claremont, to Orange County's name, to the artifacts featured in this episode, the citrus industry left indelible traces of its tenure in the region. Citrus grew as the region grew, from small farmers and businesses in the late 19th century until the late 20th century when citrus became a modern, technologically advanced sector of the economy with large multinational corporations at the center of its development. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of a History of Central Florida podcast. For more information about the items featured in this episode, visit the Heritage Center and Indian River Citrus Museum at 2140 14th Avenue, Vero Beach, Florida, 32960, and the Winter Garden Heritage Museum at 1 North Main Street, Winter Garden, Florida, 34787. Be sure to listen to our next episode, Wartime Civil Defense.